I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You're listening to Text Message with me, Nate Langson, And I'm Ian Morris. And we are starting this week briefly with a delve into our email bag for good reason. Now, last week, we talked about the BBC iPlayer loophole closing, people having to pay a license fee for the iPlayer. And as part of that, we talked about the alleged vans that drive or used to drive around Britain, tracking down people who don't have TV licenses, scanning their airwaves, seeing who's watching television programs without the right permissions and we debated whether or not these vans really exist yes i didn't believe in them at all well ian yes we've we've had an email here and i'll save the description of who it's from until the end safe to say i trust this person okay the email goes as follows dear nate was listening to text message yesterday and you were asking whether any of the listeners had ever actually seen a tv detector van back in the 1990s i not only saw one but had a visit from one and was kindly informed that I didn't have an up-to-date license, that I'd been watching Neighbours and issued me with a fine and a warning not to use the TV until I got one. That email comes from my mother. Oh, I was going to say, but how do we know the credibility of this uh, witness? The, The sources we get our information from never cease to amaze me. Indeed. Well, we'll come back to some other emails that we've got later. One about the TV license stuff again. Another one about 4G. Thanks to everyone who's been writing in. It's great to have had so many emails. We've actually got too many we can even get into this week, but podcast at natelangson.com. Keep them coming. We do read them all, though, don't we, Nate? We read them all, and we actually discuss them all via email. We do. Right, let's take a swan dive into this week's news. Let's start with uh, something that I was nervous about talking about, but we'll be brief. Pokemon Go Revenues. We have to touch on this briefly because I found it interesting. But apparently, one in five players are paying money in Pokemon Go using in-app payments. And a million people in the first month in the UK were putting down money to pay for this game, which is more than a lot of, well, a hell of a lot more than than a lot of those games. Uh, In this survey conducted by YouGov, the pollster, it it, it was higher than Clash Royale or or Candy Crush, Soda Saga, Ah. you know, those those ones. It was higher than all those. So people really keen to put money down. You know my theory on this? Go on. It's because, I think, and I, I, I genuinely believe this, a lot of the people playing the game in the UK will have... um, fewer pokey stops and um the like near them just by virtue of the fact that i think the basis of the game was you know i think there are a lot of american stops and you can see that online with people talking about it so i suspect that we've actually to some extent had our hands forced somewhat on that Stephen Harmston, who's the head of YouGov Reports, said that their research had shown that spending levels in the first five weeks in only three countries that they surveyed, Germany, UK and and the US, is already over a quarter of a billion dollars. And it's it's on track to become a billion uh, sort of a billion dollar run rate game, as they say. So, but that probably won't last. I do think that the Pokemon Go, I think the finances of it will dry up within a year. I, I, I do think people will carry on playing the game as long as they can add new stuff into it. 
Um, but I think there was a lot of excitement initially um, about, you know, so if thinking, oh, I might miss a Pokemon or whatever, so I'll buy some balls. I have done that. Um, so I am one of these idiots that's actually spent real money on this game. Kate did um, as well. She well, bought balls. I'm happy. I'm happy enough. I have had a relatively large amount of enjoyment out of it. And uh, I saw my nephew today who's, um, you know, uh, quite good and like you know in the way that all kids often are with these things and it's a nice thing for us to be able to talk about it's it, it it's something that I'm glad I'm playing and the kids are playing because actually it, it it's one of those rare things where um, it gives you an in with people who you don't always have a lot to say if you will because you know you know what kids are like we've all been one indeed I, I was one um, back in the day yeah <laughs> same I was much shorter back then. <laughs> uh, my beard was less notable. <laughs> Let's put the pokey story back in the pokeballs and uh, toss it into a lake for now because we're going to talk about Virgin Media briefly. It has teased something that I wanted to ask Ian about a little bit because I actually don't know the answer to some of these questions. What it has teased is its new 4K TiVo TV box. Uh, we don't know much about it other than they're going to be revealing some more details about it soon. But obviously, this is the answer to Sky Q that Virgin customers have been, I say, waiting for. I, I assume some people have been waiting for it. I mean, I have a 4K television and I'm on Virgin Media, so I assume I'll be interested in this. But we've talked a lot also recently about Sky Q, and that's side of the camp of, of television and what have you so ian what yeah. do we know about this 4k tivo thing and is well, it something i should be excited about as both a virgin customer and a 4k tv owner i think you basically said all we actually know about it it was basically a marketing sort of a, the, the virgin corporate uh, office tweeted this thing uh, and there's some information on a, in a press release but that's basically all we know it's going to be powered by tivo it will support 4k um, and it's ugly as sin. It does look a bit like an Xbox One, the first generation. No, no, it? it doesn't even. It doesn't even look that good. It looks like one of those very generic, cheap freeview boxes from back when I was at CNET. Uh, but hey, you know, it's not what the box looks like that matters. It's uh, it, it's what it does. And I think yeah, 4K is good. You see, the thing is that Virgin has an advantage over Sky in that. A lot of the a lot of the off, the stuff that was offered by Sky was um, stuff that was going to bring it up, you know, it, technically bring it up to what was already possible. So Sky leans quite heavily with Q on the ability to stream content to other rooms without having to have a a satellite cable put in every room. Um, now, I mean, you Virgin. You, again, you do they, they you do need to have it cabled if you want stuff in other rooms. But it was a bit more. Um, they had solutions that were very geared up for multi-room, and because when you're having Virgin, you almost certainly have to have it installed by a professional. Having it put in multiple rooms was never much of a problem, and they would often do it if you were nice to them as a no charge extra. Um, so I think Virgin perhaps arguably had less way to come. Um, a lot of people probably had multi-room already, but. What what will be difficult for them is getting an interface that's as nicely designed as Sky's, that's as modern and sort of forward looking. TiVo has been a problem. Um, it was okay at the start. I liked it. I had it right back when they launched it, and it was all right. It got um, a lot slower and more clunky as time's gone on, and the box hasn't, the hardware hasn't really kept up. Um, so this is a much-needed update. It's essential, really. Uh, I just don't know whether TiVo's up to the job and how much investment's going into that branch, but we'll see. 
Well, there's going to be an official launch event coming up, and we're going to be having a look at this, obviously, to see whether it's exciting enough for for me to put my own money down. That's always a good, you know, a, a good signal of confidence in some technology. I feel when people who often are professionally reviewing stuff and a loaned equipment for a period of time to test stuff out. If you then afterwards, once you've sent it back, you put your cash down and pay for one, that's always a good sign as to whether it's worth having. And I'm personally looking forward to being in that camp. Mm. Uh, if If for no other reason to justify the money I spent on a 4K TV that currently has shown me amounts of content i can count on one hand without even needing to extend all of my fingers well you need to bin that tv off mate don't you get an hdr one nah i'm happy with this i'm not (laughs) that interested in hdr at this point i just want some big picture stuff that's all i want big picture stuff uh and ideally a 4k version of memoirs of a geisha and men in black but we'll come back to that in the future let us know if you're excited about 4k box podcast at natelangson.com Windows XP, Ian. Not yes. every day we get to talk about uh, Windows Well, that's because the time for it has passed. It's a dead operating system. Well, it's uh, it, it's a full person old enough to gamble. Uh, old at this point, isn't it? It's like yeah. 15, 16 years. But the story this week, and I noticed this on the register, is that apparently the Met, the London police, uh, Met police in, in, in the capital, it's missed a deadline, its own deadline, for getting rid of machines that have Windows XP on it. And there's nearly 30,000 Windows PCs running XP still. This is going to cost them another goodness knows how many million quid to fix this problem because basically now they have to continue to pay Microsoft for extended support, don't they? It's strange, yeah. So apparently, and I'm reading directly from the register here, at last count in May 2015, the Met had a total of 35,640 PCs. 35,640. Out of them, 34,920, so under 2,000 less, were in fact, under 1,000 less, were, um, were all of which were running Windows XP. Doesn't really sound like they've made any effort at all to fix that problem, does it? Well, apparently they set a deadline of March this year to migrate to Windows 8.1. Wow. Uh, but apparently now, according to our new London Mayor, Sadiq Khan, he has said that only 8,000 of the PCs used by um, by the police have moved to 8.1. And that's, since, that's since, since last September, so that's almost a year. That is shocking, because one mistake with a firewall... And people could be accessing, you know, data willy-nilly because the, the, the simple fact of the matter is that, it, that XP just isn't that secure. It is an ancient operating system. Yeah, it system. is. But it's, it's one of these, it's these battles, isn't it? Because the argument is that they need to be sure of security and, you know, and, and, and ensure that all the systems they depend upon that could could damage their ability to protect people, which is, I'm sure, what their argument would be. Yeah. They have to be absolutely watertight that that it's going to work as well, That's at true. least as well, in the migration. But in doing so, you you force your current employees or users to be more at risk by not moving. But let me run this up the flagpole, right? So worst case scenario, like they discover that a, a, a central piece of what they do day to day, say a fingerprint database or something, doesn't work on anything past XP. We are at the point now where technologically you can virtualize an operating system with very little effort. Like that can be done in the cloud if necessary. So they could have their own servers running that would enable them to do stuff like this. 
uh, really, for the, for the desktop PCs, there is absolutely no excuse for this at all. And it is going to cost the taxpayer a, a huge sum of money that can be much better spent doing other things just because they haven't managed to yet investigate. This should have been a priority years ago, and it should be an ongoing priority so it never happens again. It's not alone, though. The US Navy, uh, actually, according yeah. to <laughs> a, a report I read, put put up a $9.1 million contract to keep XP security patches coming until the uh, until next year still. That's that's going to cost them $31 million for you the know, whole length of this contract for the US Navy to keep using there's, XP. There's a version of Windows for submarines. Oh, really? <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not joking. I'm just going to I'm just going to google it now, Windows for submarines. Uh yeah, so I think the Royal Navy uh, does it, and I don't know what they did to it. And I, it, obviously, I can't read it while I'm doing this. But there is a specific um, set of hardware and software that um, is, I think, uh, what is it? It's uh, well, they say Windows 2000 on the register, but apparently it's XP. Um, so I mean, but then if it's a submarine, it doesn't matter so much because basically a submarine isn't internet connected is it and it no. and and those systems and it's like um the same is true of the space station i believe that's i don't know if it's running on xp um but it takes them a very very long time to get stuff ready um and the hardware has to be certified so they can only use one kind of laptop so they buy a load and if anyone if one breaks then they just have another one in the cover that they get out and send up and it has to be exactly the same so those things are it's understandable but they are not internet connected and there are very good reasons that they aren't kept up to date you know normal pc plod desktop computers i would be very surprised if there's any software that's going to cause a real problem back when i did it years ago there were some applications we ran that just wouldn't move Uh, and that's fine and what you do in those situations is you have one computer in the office maybe that is kept running um and perhaps it isn't supported very well and then you you know and then you migrate as soon as you can but there's no excuse for this i think the excuse would be or or maybe maybe the reason is that there's going to be one person in charge of answering the question is this guaranteed to be fine and when you're doing something for the police, you want to be 100% sure that the answer is, in fact, yes. And until you say yes, it's difficult to invest in transferring stuff over, I guess. But it's not even just police forces. I mean, we've named, you know, armies and and the police here, but a lot of ATMs use Windows XP, don't they? Like the, the hole-in-the-wall system, link yeah. machines, that yeah, sort of thing. I- Again, that's, uh, I suppose that's something of a worry. But again, those probably aren't externally connected. But again, you know, I, there's no excuse for it, really. I, I, I think that if you, have, if, you, if you want to keep your business secure, you need to make sure you're... I mean, that could be moving to Linux. I, you know, I'm not saying that Windows is always the right solution. Um, but, yeah, I just say if, if you're going to run old versions of Windows, you are asking for trouble. Well, before we move on into some other news stories and some of your wonderful emails, let's check in with our friend across the pond, Tom Merritt from Daily Tech News Show. Tom, what has been going on? Hey, thanks, Nate. This week on Daily Tech News Show, Veronica Belmont explained the thorny ethics of disclosing sponsorships on social media. We participate in the great sport of adblock tennis between Facebook and the adblocker community. We discussed how to prevent bullying in virtual reality, pondered the idea of a mandatory emergency mode on your cell phone, and discovered how the hacks in Mr. Robot actually work, thanks to Darren Kitchen. All that and more at DailyTechNewsShow.com. 
Right, Ian, bit more news before we get to some email. I read with a great degree of interest a story on Engadget this week about the UK getting an ability to cut mobile phones off being illegally used in prisons. And the reason I was so interested in this story is not because um, of the new story itself, but more the fact that it, it shows that this wasn't a thing already. Now, apparently, there are something like 15,000 handsets and SIM cards confiscated from the hands of prisoners just in 2015 in the UK. And that's a difficult one because obviously you have to find the phone and then you have to go and get the phone and wrestle it out of a prisoner. In fact, maybe literally. I don't know how they conceal these things. It's staggering that this wasn't just done at the network level, that if there is a reason to believe a phone is being used by a prisoner, they can just tell the network to cut it off. But that is what is now happening. There's a new uh, a new initiative called the Telecommunications Restriction Order that government officials can apply to take advantage of. And if they are granted the right to use this power, they can simply go to the network and the network will block that person's SIM. In fact, they'll block the phone, the device itself, I assume with the IMEI identifier. Uh, thereby negating the need to find exactly which prisoners got it. Well, and- it does sound like they're using a new sort of scanning technique to do this, which I think is quite interesting in itself. So that they will obviously be able to find... Um, I guess you could do it by having a thing that registers all mobile signals in the prison, uh, the vicinity, and then having a log of the ones that are owned by officers, you know, as personal handsets. Um, and I mean, you know, obviously it's going to be difficult to do it because... You know, you never know what you're going to pick up from a stray next door neighbour or whatever. Um, but I can see the need for this to be curtailed. Um, I don't know, like you, I don't know why it would be necessary for specific legislation to come into place uh, for them to do this. Because I would have thought that the operators would do that if the if the police or the you know prison service said we believe this phone's being used for crime. I think it it's to allow be. a level of protection that it's it, they have to jump through some hoops to prove accuracy of their of their their uh what am i trying to say here their beliefs for for want of a better word um i mean the the scottish uh prison system i think has been using that jamming a jamming system those stingray devices where they can sort of detect the signals and and, uh interfere with them so they're they're rendered useless but the problem with jamming is that obviously if there's an emergency in the prison and someone needs to call for, you know, assistance or something, that causes a problem there. I guess they have radios that are... Because actually most police radios operate on uh, mobile networks now, don't they? But I guess there must be a way of getting around that problem. Um, we, we don't obviously know enough about it, do we, to really speak authoritatively about it. But it's interesting that it's A, a problem, uh, and B, is as difficult to solve as it seems that it is. Are you a prisoner? Have you had your phone blocked um, find another one and let us know. Podcast <laughs> at natelangson.com. Staying briefly on the topic of mobiles, uh, if you're not a prisoner, this affects you uh, a lot more, which is threes feel at home. It's roaming thing. Deg- uh, degree? It's not a degree. System. <laughs> is applying to an additional 24 countries now. That brings us up to 42 countries globally that you can roam 
around in, and I'm mentioning this because it's sort of holiday season. Uh, here's the list of countries that you can now roam for free and on three. Belgium, Bulgaria, Croatia, Cyprus, the Czech Republic, Estonia, Germany, Gibraltar, Greece, Hungary, Iceland, the Isle of Man, Latvia, Liechtenstein, Lithuania, Luxembourg, Malta, the Netherlands, Poland, Portugal, Romania, Slovakia, Slovenia, Guernsey and Jersey. Those little ones at the end. I have to say that I, the Isle of Man is one that should have been done a long time ago because that is absolutely ridiculous. You could also say the same about Guernsey and Jersey. You could, you could in fact, arguably more so. Um, I mean, the Isle of Man is its own, you know, is, is governed by its own, you know, set of stuff. But, yeah. um, uh, you know, the, the idea that you can get on a sort of five minute boat ride and, and have to pay a different, you know, roaming agreement is stupid. Well, it can work the other way around as well. You can be standing in Cornwall mm. or or um, or one of the coastal towns and and accidentally roam onto one of the continental mobile networks. That yes. that happens when you can accidentally jump onto a French network just because you're on the coastline that is pointing towards France. That can happen. Yeah, I think it probably affects our European cousins a bit more, doesn't it? Because they they are all a lot of them are always bordering another country. You know, there are people who live on borders. So yeah. yeah. It was noted in this Engadget story that I saw that the roaming charges are going to be abolished across the EU next summer anyway. So this only temporarily allows three to be one step ahead of the competition. But of course, it's worth noting that we're coming out of the EU. Well, we're still in it now and it's going to take two years. That's fine. We'll get this at least to start with before they destroy us, the very fabric of society. Yeah, look forward to your one pound a minute calls coming back, everybody. Well, that's going to do it for news this week, but keep your ideas for other stories or discussion points coming in. Podcast at natelangson.com. couple of picks from the podcast mailbag this week, in addition to my mother, who we heard from earlier. This one on the same topic of the license fee and the whole detection van system. This comes from David, who says, Back at university, I worked for my halls of residence in Russell Square. It's in London, for anyone who is not aware. Uh, from 2005 to 2007, given that you need a TV license behind every locked door, we would regularly get enforcement officials asking to look around the hall with equipment to detect television sets. We would only allow them in if they gave notice, so we could warn the residents, David adds, uh, or with a warrant. Uh, he points out this was in a different age. Now he reckons there's only a handful of actual television sets in the 1200 room International Hall over there. 1200 rooms. That's hard to imagine, isn't it? Um, but yes, it's, it's quite possible how many students are bringing physical television sets in, or rather how many of them are connecting them to regular broadcasting systems as opposed to streaming it all, plugging it into the TV. Uh, he compliments the podcast, though. So thank you, David, for uh, for your kind words on the show, too. Um Ian, did you, do you remember this happening when you were at university? Um, I remember hearing threat of it. I don't think it ever happened. Um, but uh, I don't know anyone that was caught for not having a TV licence. Um, it's a difficult one, isn't it? Because it's it's hard to walk into a student hall and find that... I mean, there are, no one in student halls has much money. Um, you know, And so taking money off them for a licence is kind of a silly thing to do, really. It's... It, it's defeating the point, and most of these people have, you know, obviously have homes that they are based at mo- a lot of the time with their parents. I'm, this is a very long-winded way of saying I don't think that students are the people we should be concentrating on, really. But it's interesting mm. to hear an actual story about. 
Yes, well, an additional one. That's two today. Mm. Two in the bag. Um, well, the last the last email that we're going to come to here, this comes from Alistair, who wanted to comment on our conversation about why so many billions, in fact, over 100 billion last year of text and picture messages are still being sent uh, in, in the era of over the top and WhatsApp and Messenger and so forth. Alistair writes in and says, just a quick observation. It's been nigh on impossible to get a contract phone that doesn't offer 4G for some years now. So the uptake itself is not particularly surprising. I would point out most of the country, geographically speaking, he says, rather than population density wise, is not covered by 4G. And indeed, up in Aberdeen, only a tiny part of the city centre and the odd little spot actually, actually receives any 4G. In the surrounding areas, even 3G is still patchy at best. And so the prevalence of text messages is probably more to do with a lack of any data signal to send iMessage or WhatsApp, etc., than being a particular choice for a lot of users in the UK. Well, and also, it's an, it's, it, it, go, it points towards that game that um, service providers have always played, which is about quoting the number of or the percentage of people covered by a service. Um, when that you know because or because it doesn't really give you the full picture, does it? And that means that there are huge parts of the country that are uh, left out for uh, 4G. I, I I would argue more should be done, and I think that 4G is the first technology that's actually really viable as a replacement for fixed line broadband in areas where you can't get good speeds. Um, so I would like to see the government doing a lot more about this. Yeah, you know, I've already had this conversation with Ed Vasey on Twitter and uh, he, he didn't seem to care what I thought. So uh, I think if he doesn't, then we're not going to get any progress, are we? Well, that's going to do it for this week. We're tying up the podcast post bag for another day. Uh, but keep sending stuff in for it. Podcast at nateslangson.com. Thank you to everyone who has. We'll come to some more next week, of course. And thank you to everyone who's been leaving us reviews on iTunes. Uh, we were in the top 10 again the other day here in the UK, and your reviews make that possible. Uh, and your your sharing, your sharing and your caring, that is, uh, that, that's your subscription to us, just leaving us a review and telling a friend or colleague. So thank you. Isn't that, isn't that right, Ian? Uh, yes, also send unmarked uh, £50 notes in the bag too. Yes, it is. It's it's gratifying, and we've we've been we've been really excited to have all the emails coming in from people because um, yeah. it is nice. It's it's just nice to hear that people are listening. I mean, you know, you you can record a podcast and put it on the internet, um, and but and we see that people are downloading it, but we don't know they're listening until they send us stuff. So it's it's a, a nice affirmation that we're doing something of value. Absolutely, absolutely. We know there are thousands of you, of you who listen every every week, but. Uh, but so it's a very small percentage of you that, that get on the email machine and, and fire some words over. So thank you to those who do and who are going to. Very nice of you. Anyway, on that note, I think Ian will see you in a week. Yes. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.